Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you on this rainy morning. It's always a privilege to have the opportunity to speak in chapel. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We have been going through Mark's Gospel uh, in chapel, and I enjoyed getting to hear the chapel speakers. Dr. Wade preached on chapter 9 the, uh, on Tuesday. It's my privilege to preach on chapter 10 today. It is a bit of a challenge to cover all, much of what goes on in the whole chapter, and so we'll, we'll, we'll give it the old college try. This is a rich chapter. And in fact, this, the verses that I'm going to read are coming at the end of a long road trip. In fact, that is what I want to speak about this morning, uh, are lessons at the end of a long road trip. And it's from Mark chapter 10 in verses 35 through 45. And I'll read those to you here in just a minute. But I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been on a trip where nothing goes as expected. You ever had those kind of trips? Well, this is one. And like I said, this is a long road trip. Chapters 9 and 10, uh, at the end of chapter 8, you have Jesus with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And that is at the northern part of the Promised Land. And from chapters 9 and 10, they make the trek all the way down to Jerusalem, and it's quite a trip. I mean, it's quite a hike. It's 150 miles, and and when you think they're traveling this on foot, that is quite a a situation. Uh, And so uh, the the road trip begins with a confession and revelation of Jesus as Lord. If you think about what happens at the end of chapter 8, you have where they're in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? They answer, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that. He he says to them, yes, that is who I am. Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjonas. And then in just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 9, as they're on their way down, uh, 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 Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And there he is transfigured before them and they see him in his glory. And so they have a confession and revelation of Jesus as the glorious Son of God, Israel's Messiah. And when this happens, the disciples do fist bumps and they say, yes, I knew it. This is going to be great. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's get this party started. Well, the only problem is, is that on this road trip, Jesus repeatedly says weird things. You say, what do you mean, weird things? Well, for one thing, he repeatedly predicts that he's going to die, uh, no less than three times. In fact, uh, he does it right there whenever Simon Peter confesses him to be the Christ. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But then he talks about how he's going to die, and it upsets Simon Peter. So Simon Peter tries to correct him. And when Simon Peter tries to correct him, uh, Jesus says to him, Satan, you know, he says, get Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. Now, if the Son of God calls you the devil, it's not your best moment. And and that's what happens. And then again in chapter 9, 
uh, he predicts his death. And at that point, verse 32, it explicitly says that they didn't understand and were afraid to ask. And then just before the verses that we're going to be looking at, uh, he predicts his death even more explicitly a third time. And so he's saying something that seems very weird to them in that he is predicting his death. Not only does he say th uh, weird things like predicting his own death, but he gives answers that no one saw coming. And that's what we see here in the 10th chapter. Uh, it opens up with others coming uh, to ask uh, very odd questions. Others ask the questions, but it's the disciples' responses that are illuminating. First, the Pharisees come to him asking him about divorce in, in verses 2 through 12. Uh, and Jesus gives an answer that they just were not expecting at all. In fact, whenever you read Matthew's gospel, how the disciples responded, they say, well, if that's the way it is, it'd be better for a man never to marry at all. And Jesus' answer seems to be, well, maybe. Uh, and then later on, you have where um, uh, you have the rich young ruler come up and say, you know, Master, what must I do to, uh, to earn eternal life? And Jesus gives the answer that reveals his covetous heart. And as he goes, the rich young ruler goes away sad. Uh, Jesus says how difficult it will be for a rich man to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And the disciples, again, say, well then, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, that which is impossible with man is possible with God. And so he's, he's repeatedly saying weird things in that he predicts his death. Uh, he gives answers that no one saw coming. But not only does he say weird things on this road trip, he does weird things. And he does it repeatedly. I mean, you say, what do you mean acting weird? Well, he refuses to act like a celebrity. The disciples saw themselves as his entourage. And as his entourage, they believed it was their job to protect him from everybody else. And so we have where they try to protect Jesus from the families wanting to bring children to be blessed. And Jesus vetoes that and brings the children in and blesses them. And then later in verses 46 through 52, they try to keep blind Bartimaeus from coming to Jesus. But he makes such a scene and Jesus says, bring him on in and Jesus heals him. And so it's very clear <clears throat> that the disciples see Jesus as Jesus Christ superstar and he refuses to fit that mold. And so on this long trip, Jesus repeatedly says wrong things. He repeatedly does wrong things. And so how are the, what kind of road trip is this for the disciples? Well, it's one of shock and awe. I mean, that's the way they're described repeatedly in this chapter. In verse 24, it says that they're amazed. In verse 26, it says they're exceedingly astonished. And then in verse 32, just before we, we have here, where he says the third time, describing how he's going to, to die, it says that they're amazed and afraid. And so <clears throat> now we're coming to the end of this road trip. And as we do, we have a request of astounding cluelessness. I mean, when you have all that setting, that, all of that buildup, now we have uh, what goes. And, and here's the amazing thing. Here's the remarkable thing. Three times, Jesus predicts his death. And each time he predicts his death, it seems to bring out the worst in the disciples. 
Look at verse 32, or, or verse uh, 35 with me. And as we read verse 35, you've got to give them credit. They've got a lot of nerve. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? Now, think about this. You talk about an adolescent setup. I mean, doesn't this sound like something teenagers would do? You know, where they come up and, and ask it, if, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, whenever I say an adolescent setup, why, why did they think Jesus would say yes, yes to this? Why did, why did they think Jesus would fall for this? And <clears throat> truth of the matter is, at this point, uh, at least John, maybe James also, maybe he really is a teenager. He is very young at this point. Point. But the very way they come up to him and ask the question, we would like for you to do whatever we ask of you, indicates that they realize that what they're getting ready to ask is probably out of bounds. And in fact, according to Matthew's gospel, it's not them doing the asking. They set their mom up to do it. And that again just reminds me of something teenagers would do. Mom, I'm afraid to ask him, will you do it? And so they, she asked them, and, and according, there's, there's indication that their mom is Jesus' aunt. And if that's so, then they were playing the family angle. And so they come up and asked that they could have the number one and number two positions right on the right hand and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Now, why are they doing this? Well, it appears that what they're trying to do is uh, maneuver to cut out Simon Peter. If you'll think about how many times in the four Gospels it says the three of them were with Jesus when something happened. You have when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. It says that Peter, James, and John were the ones in the room with him when this happened. When they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is Peter, James, and John who are with Jesus. When the disciples go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus goes a bit further, it is Peter, James, and John who go all the way into the garden with Jesus. So Peter, James, and John were the trio, the, the three amigos. Well, remember what happened in chapter 8 when Jesus asked, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that and says, Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he speaks about being uh, Simon Peter being given the keys to the kingdom. Well, that sounds, you know, like, that sounds like trouble. That sounds like a problem to James and to John. And so what they appear to be doing is uh, to be working around the promise of Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And if that's what they're doing, then this is cold. I mean, this is truly cold, what they are doing. So they've got a lot of nerve, but they don't have much understanding. Look at verse 36 and 37. It says, as, as there, it says <clears throat> again, and he said to them, what would you have me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, 
remember the context in which they say this. They remind me of the fellow who walks into the store, walks up to the counter, and says to the person behind the counter, I'd like to order a pizza. And the person behind the counter says, Sir, this is an auto parts store. We sell batteries, tires, and windshield wipers. And there's a pause, and the man says, I would like pepperoni and extra cheese on my pizza. I mean, there's just such a disconnect. Somewhere, there's just been a complete breakdown of communication. They simply weren't picking up what Jesus was laying down. Now, <clears throat> and here's an important point. As we are shocked and indignant that these men would ever dare to ask this question, but to ask this question in this context where Jesus has just told them he's going to die upon the cross. There are times, more times than we like to admit, when Christians, even Christian leaders, behave in ways that are remarkably selfish or in ways that are remarkably clueless. We are to learn from this passage. And we are to learn not to become discouraged or to stumble when these things occur and when fellow believers behave in this way. And more to the point, we are to endeavor by God's grace that we never are the ones who are so selfish and are so clueless. But that's what we see happening here. So these two ask a totally clueless question that we could be on at your right and at your left. Now, multiple commentators have pointed out that within a week, there will be one at Jesus' right and at Jesus' left, but it will be two thieves. And so, just how clueless are these fellows? Well, that brings up the second point. And Jesus gives an answer that says a whole lot more than they realize. Do you want to know what Jesus thinks of their comprehension skills, their cognitive abilities at this point, their spiritual insight? What is Jesus' assessment? Verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. You don't have a clue. And then Jesus speaks about the cup and the baptism. Verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Now, this is a much more veiled way of saying things than he says it in verse 34. When you look down in verse 34, he is quite explicit about what's getting to happen to him. He says, what are they going to do with the Messiah? They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. And so what is he saying? What, what is the cup and the baptism here? Well, the cup is when Jesus takes our cup. And what does it mean to share a cup with another? Well, it means to enter into communion with them. It means to enter into a relationship and a communion with another. And so when Jesus takes our cup, 
He is taking our need. He's going to take our sin. He's going to drink the cup of our guilt. He's going to drink the cup of the wrath of God that we deserve, and he's going to do so on our behalf. And so that's what he means by the cup. And then he talks about the baptism. What does he mean whenever he talks about the cup and the baptism? Well, it lets us know that when he enters into communion with us and takes our sin and bears our guilt and experiences the wrath that we deserve, that the experience will be overwhelming. It will be immersive. And so that's what he means by this. Now, how clueless are these fellows after Jesus says to this? Well, they're a couple of can-do disciples. Look at verse 39. How do they respond? And they said to him, sign us up. We are able. Wow. You talk about a couple of clueless fellows. Well, as they say it this way, Jesus then pronounces a rather enigmatic prophecy. Look again at verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So he says to them, well, <clears throat> fellas, now that you think about it, now that I think about it, you, you, you are going to enter in. You are going to drink the cup and be baptized with me. And if you think about it, James and John, of the apostles, James will be the first of the apostles to be martyred. In Acts chapter 12, he will be beheaded by Herod Agrippa. And John will be the last of the apostles and will spend the last years of his life in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And so in a very real way, these two men do exemplify the first and the last the complete story of what's going to happen to these apostles as they follow Jesus and are in, enter into the cup and into the baptism. And so we see where they ask a question of remarkable cluelessness, and Jesus gives them an answer that says more than they realize, and then Jesus turns everything upside down. Now, I was exceedingly grateful whenever I found out that I was preaching from Mark chapter 10. There's all kinds of reasons, not the least of which we're going to get to verse 45, and this is one of the magnificent verses of all Scripture. But <clears throat> one of the reasons I really am, am enjoying the opportunity to preach on this passage is that I don't have to wonder how to make the application. This is one of those passages where Jesus himself applies the principle to the lives of the disciples and to our lives also. And so how should we apply this passage of Scripture and the teaching of what just happened here? Jesus teaches us in verses 41 through 44. And Jesus first makes the application towards service. And so it says in verse 41, and, and like I said, how out of bounds was this? Well, just look how the other ten respond. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So now we've got a riff. We've got a, we've, we've, we've got a problem. Uh, they're, they're not in fellowship with one another. So Jesus calls to them, and he says to them, 
here's how service is going to operate. First, he's going to tell us how it's not going to happen, and then he's going to tell us how it is going to happen. How is it not going to happen? Verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. What's the point? He says, for the Gentiles, it's all about power. Every relationship is a power relationship. Someone is the top dog and someone is the underling. And he, how does he then say it is for us? It won't be this way for you. Look at the very next verse, verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Whatever way these power relationships are operating, this is not the way I am supposed to relate to others. It's not the way you are supposed to relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to flip the narrative. We're going to turn the pyramid on its head. We're going to have a subversive way of understanding the way that power relationships operate. In fact, we're going to make the first, last, and the last first. Verse 43 again. But whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. And so, in the word there is diakonos. It has the idea of deacon. And so he says, <clears throat> you are to have an entirely different understanding of the privilege and the blessing and the opportunity of being a help, a servant to another. And so we are to have a radically different understanding of service. We're to have a radically different understanding of suffering. Look again at verse 44. For whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, <clears throat> what is the difference between diakonos and doulos, servant, slave? I'll let the New Testament professors uh, tell us just, if, are they being used as synonyms here? Or is he making an even more dramatic statement? At any rate, what Jesus is saying is that our level of service will entail that of, that of being a slave, as much as difficult a word as that is. And it certainly carries the idea of a service that can involve suffering, of pay, take, paying a terrible price. And it lets us know, I, I don't think... <clears throat> Anyone who wants to suffer is pathological. I don't think anybody in their right mind should go out and look for opportunities to suffer. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just a that's a mental illness. But there are times when God will call upon us to serve Him, and the level of service will be such that it will be painful, and it will involve paying that price. And when we do, when we have that call upon us, we are to do so as the Lord did and as unto the Lord. We are called to have a radically different opinion and understanding of service and of suffering and of sacrifice. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so we are to follow Jesus' example, not only in service and in suffering, but in sacrifice. And as a sacrifice, Jesus is our ransom. This is one of the magnificent passages of the Bible in which Jesus explains to us what the cross is all about. He is not just, be, I am going to talk about him being our model and exemplar, but that's not all that he's doing here. He's doing something radically more. He is paying a price that we cannot pay, which brings me up to the next point. So Jesus teaches us here. We are to, to have a different attitude towards service. We're to have a different attitude towards suffering. We're to have a different attitude towards sacrifice. And then not only does Jesus teach us, but as all great teachers do, he models it. He shows it. And he, and he models this for us. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What am I supposed to do with a passage like this and what Jesus does? Well, simultaneously, I am to make a comparison and a contrast. Let's talk about the contrast first. The contrast, what we see, is that Jesus succeeds where the disciples fail. He succeeds where you and I fail. So therefore, everything they ought to be, Jesus is. He is, as a result, my righteousness. He is my substitute. He is my only plea. The reason why I have a hope is not because I have been the exemplar of the follower of Jesus. The only reason I have a hope is because Jesus himself, he is my success. He is my triumph. He is my righteousness. And I am to find my hope in him. And because of his triumph, he is our Savior. And so we are to see him in this role as one of contrast. The disciples fail. He succeeds gloriously. And after we see him as our salvation, we are to see him as our model. And so now we make the comparison. Jesus is our example. He is our model. He is our ideal. He is our exemplar. And so, God, I pray to him today that all of us will be the manifestation of Jesus Christ to everyone with whom we come in contact. So what's the conclusion of this? What's the lesson that we are to learn at a long road trip? Well, I think the Apostle Paul makes the same point that's being made here in Philippians chapter 2. When Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, being equal with God, uh, he humbled himself, uh, emptied himself, and being fashioned as a man, he humbled himself unto death, 
even the death of the cross. And as he humbled himself even unto death, even the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow to the glory of God the Father. How am I to take away, and what, what am I to take away from this passage of Scripture? I am to see Jesus gloriously, successfully being what <laughs> I am not. And after I see him as my Savior, I am to pick up my cross and follow him, having this mind in, him, in me to let Jesus be my model. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that Christ has succeeded where Ken Keithley has failed. He has obeyed where I have disobeyed. He has been faithful where I have been faithless. And because of his lifelong obedience, that journey that ended at the cross is our salvation. Now I see the risen Lord, and I pray that we would take his words where he then says that we are to follow him, and we are to learn from his example, and we are to follow in his steps. Let that be true for all of us. In Jesus' name, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.